I think I've um, mentioned to you before that New Year's Day is one of my favorite days of the year. This time of the year is one of my favorite times of year because I love uh, the opportunities that New Year encourages for fresh starts, uh, to do things differently. Um, Sometimes it's as simple as right at the end of the year us rearranging our furniture or rearranging the children's uh, rooms and their toys. Sometimes we've been known to paint a room in our house at the end of the year, just to have a fresh start for January 1st. I love, this is a simple thing, but I love even getting my new check register and starting out afresh, uh, keeping track of my finances, which some of you will probably realize means I'm a little strange. But I love these fresh starts that the new year affords us. Um, I love having the opportunity to begin a new sermon series, as we'll do, Lord willing, next week, uh, to begin reading the Bible afresh, starting back over at the beginning or with a new plan. I hope that you uh, will do that as well. Um, But in all these things, um, I love fresh starts. Uh, When I was a boy, I was the one who was always on the Atari hitting the reset button when the game didn't quite exactly go just the way it was supposed to, just to get a fresh start, to start over and to get it right this time around. Um, But I think that one of the things God's been teaching me, I hope, over the years and particularly lately, is that my longing to start over, my longing to get it just right, uh, my longing for a fresh start or to hit the reset button, my longing for the new year, uh, is really a longing for heaven, where the fresh start will be really fresh and it will be final. What I'm really longing for when I want to start over, when I want to wipe the slate clean, is I'm longing for eternity. And more than just heaven, I'm longing for the new heavens and the new earth that the Scripture speaks about. I'm longing for the day of the Lord or God's new year. And if you long for fresh starts, if the new year is the same for you as it is for me, that's not a bad thing. But remember that perhaps the new year is reminding you of a longing that's far greater and that's far deeper in your soul than just to have the furniture rearranged or just to have a new start on your Bible reading plan. Christ is coming someday and there will be a new year and a new day that will last forever and everything will be just right. After all, there's a reason why... As New Year's Day comes around, so many of us have these longings to start afresh year after year after year. The reason why we have these same longings every new year is because we didn't get it all right last year. And we never will, will we? We live in a broken world. We are broken people. We are flawed people. We are sinful people. That's not to say we should never hit the reset button, that we should never start afresh. Obviously, there are lots of situations where we should But let's realize that what we're really longing for is for God to hit the reset button. What our hearts really want is not January 1st, ultimately, but the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. And that's where I want you to turn now. On this day, I want to remind you that it's not ultimately January 1, but Revelation 21 that will truly refresh our souls and allow us to start afresh and to finally get it right. I want to read to you from this chapter the first eight verses. So Revelation 21, it's the second to last chapter in the Bible, and we'll read the first eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, 
and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Father, I pray that um, as we begin this new year that you would give us uh, a longing or just Help us to identify the longing that's inside of us for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, uh, the new bodies and souls that we will have when Christ comes. Help us to long for these things. Help us to appreciate these things and to love you more as the one who gives them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I really want to focus your attention this morning on the first half of verse He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am making all things new, God says. And what we want to ask today is, what is included in the all things? Of course, we could be here all day answering that question, right? Because it's all things. I'm making all things new. But we're going to narrow it down and looking at these eight verses, just notice six verses sort of broad categories. We'll look at each of them briefly, but six things that are going to be made new when Christ comes the second time. So first of all, when Jesus comes the second time, we're told in verse 1 that heaven itself will be made new. Heaven will be made new. Then I saw a new heaven. Now, someone may say, well, why does heaven need to be made new? Sin's curse surely is on the earth. We understand why the earth needs to be made new, why we need to be made new. We're sinful. But the curse doesn't extend to heaven and the angels and the saints that are there. Why would heaven need to be made new? Well, in this case, the word heaven is not talking about heaven where God lives and where the angels dwell. But here, heaven is speaking about what we would call space. What he's saying in verse 1 is that God is going to create a new set of outer space, a new place in which this earth will dwell. Heaven, in many cases in the Bible, is referring to the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun, the galaxies, and so on. And those things will need to be made new, because we're also told in this same book of Revelation that the stars are going to be swept away, that the sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll and disappear when Christ comes. When Christ comes, there will be chaos in the heavens, in the sky, in space. But, verse 5a, I am making all things new, including the heavens. How is he going to do that? Well, just scroll down with me to the end of the chapter. Look at verses 23, 24, and 25. We see a description, not first of all of the new heaven, but we see a description of the city of God. But listen to what it says. And the city has no need 
of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. Do you see how he describes a different kind of heaven? There will be no more sun, and therefore there will be no more earth orbiting around the sun. And because the earth will no longer orbit around the sun, there will be no more night to hide the deeds of wickedness. There will be no more night for us to endure in loneliness. Instead, the new earth will be surrounded by a new heaven which will encompass one eternal day. It will never be night again. And this one eternal day will not be illumined by a sun, but by the sun, by God himself, we're told and by the Lamb, who is the lamp of this new world. God and His Son, Jesus, the Lamb, smiling down upon their ransomed people with a new heaven and no more night. That's the first thing. It's a simple thing, but it's a wonderful thing. Then I saw a new heaven. But also we're told in this passage that when Jesus comes the second time, earth will be made new as well, still in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. A new earth. Again, we should ask, why why do we need a new earth? What's the problem with the first earth? Well, the problem with the first earth is that it's under a curse because of Adam's sin and because of our sin. This world is under a curse. And that curse includes, on a micro level, things like thorns and thistles, things like bacteria in Uh, our water, and sometimes in our bodies. Pollution characterizes this first earth. Snake venom, all sorts of things on a small level are wrong with our planet because of sin. And on a macro level, there are hurricanes, there are earthquakes, there are floods, there's extreme heat, there's extreme cold, and so on. We've come a long way, haven't we, from what is described in the Garden of Eden in chapter 1 of Genesis a long way in the wrong direction. There's a problem with this first earth. Creation, Paul says, groans, waiting to be made new. Creation groans like you can imagine an old man trying to get out of bed in the morning. There are so many things in his body that are deteriorating that he groans just rising up in the morning. And that, Paul says, is what our planet does. It groans. There's something wrong. And our planet, this creation turned bad also destroys, doesn't it? Destroys life in many cases. But he who sits on the throne said, I am making all things new, including the earth. And we get a snapshot of the new earth if we look down again, this time at the beginning of chapter 22. What will the new earth be like? Well, listen to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now just notice some things there. Our earth is characterized by pollution, by bacteria in our water and so on. But the water of life, the river of the water of life in the new earth will be, we're told in verse 1, clear as crystal. 
In our world, because of Adam's sin, we have to work by the sweat of our brow to get food enough from the ground. We are not the ones doing the work, but the ones who are work just to get a little bit of a crop every year. But in the new heavens and the new earth, the trees will bear 12 different kinds of fruit, and they will bear it every single month. Won't that be amazing? And then there's this tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Is that literal? Is that figurative? We're not sure positively, but the one thing that it tells us is that there will be healing in this new earth. Sickness won't reign like it does here. Death won't reign like it does here. Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. And those snapshots of everything in this earth made right again will be repeated in every plant and in every body of water and in every geological formation and in every chemical on the planet. And in the animals as well. We're told in Isaiah 11, aren't we? That when Christ comes, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the little child will play by the hole of the cobra. It will be a whole new world. All these blessings, chapter 22, verse 1, are from the throne of God and from the lamb. The one who says, I am making all things new. We're waiting a new heaven. We're waiting a new earth. And thirdly, when Jesus comes the second time, The church will be made new. The church, that's what we read in chapter 21, verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, who is the bride that he's speaking about here? Well, it's the city, the heavenly city, the holy city, New Jerusalem. But both of those things, the bride and the heavenly city, are both speaking about the people of God. There may well be a a literal city as the one he describes as we read on in the chapter, but the key to the city is that it will be filled with the people of God, the bride of Christ. And what we're being told here is that the church itself is going to be made new. Not Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church only, but the body of Christ the world over is going to be made new. The body of Christ in every generation. The the people of God, the dead in Christ will rise. And not only will their bodies be made new, but everything about us as a group is going to be different and better and right. Right now the church is a mixed bag, isn't it? The body of Christ in the world is a mixed bag. There are many good things, things to be thankful for as the gospel goes out, as people walk in holiness. But there are blemishes in the bride of Christ as well in this world. For one thing, there are divisions among Christian individuals, divisions sometimes between one church and another, between one denomination and another. There are errors in many places, people who believe wrong things about God and about the Bible, who who are genuine Christians but who are mistaken about things, important things even. Often the church is distracted from our mission We're thinking about so many temporal things that we forget that we are an army out winning people to Christ as we sang. There are also difficulties in the church that aren't our own doing. Often our message is marginalized by the people around us. People around us are slow to believe and the church is slow to grow because of it. Christians in many places are persecuted. The church is filled with scars in this world. Some self-inflicted and others afflicted by the world around us. The church, in other words, has all the same effects upon it of the curse that the planet has the planet groans waiting to be made new and so does the church the church is not all in this world what she should be but behold verse 5 i am making all things new 
when Christ comes, the church, as we read in verse 2, will be made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Everything will be prepared. All the blemishes will be taken care of and the church will be ready for Christ. Persecution, when Christ comes, will cease. When Christ comes, the gospel will no longer be marginalized. People will no longer turn a deaf ear to our words about Jesus. In fact, we're told that when Christ comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Some of them to their own everlasting destruction, but the gospel will be marginalized no more. When Christ comes, all of our errors will be corrected. None of us will believe wrong things about God or about ourselves any longer. Because then, we're told, we shall know him fully, even as we've been fully known. When Christ comes, all the breaches between individual Christians and larger groups of Christians will be healed. And in fact, they are healed even now in heaven. I love the story, some of you have heard it perhaps, of George Whitfield, the great preacher of the 1700s. Um, he was preaching one time about the unity of the church or the unity that we ought to have with other believers. And he stopped in the middle of his sermon and began talking to Father Abraham in heaven. And he says, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? Any Episcopalians? No, says Father Abraham. Any Methodists? No. Any Presbyterians or seceders or independents? No, no, no. Well, Father Abraham, whom have you in heaven? We don't know those names here, he says. Everyone here is a Christian. And someday that's the way it will be. We won't divide. We won't uh, fuss. We won't argue anymore in the new heavens and the new earth. When Christ comes again, the church will be made new. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Also, when Christ comes the second time, our own individual friendship with God will be made new. That's what we find in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Our relationship with God, our friendship with God, will be made new. Not in that it will be a different type of friendship. God has always loved us, and he could never love us any more than he does today or than he did before we believed. And we, since we believed, have always loved him. So it won't be a different type of relationship, but there will be a different intensity, according to verse 3. God, who is now in heaven, will dwell among us, we're told. He will make his tabernacle among men. So our relationship with God in the new earth will be no longer one of a relationship with an individual invisible person of the trinity namely the holy spirit it won't just be that the holy spirit will be with us any longer in heaven we don't want to diminish the fact that the holy spirit is with us we are thankful that the holy spirit is with us but the point is in eternity we will not only have the holy spirit with us but we will see the father face to face and we will see the nail prints in the son's hands and we will know the spirit as well like we've never known him in this world the tabernacle of God, we're told, is among men, and he will dwell among them on the earth. There's something tangible about verse 3. God is going to be with us on the earth. What exactly does that mean, that God will be with us on the earth? What will we see? Well, we're not told all the details, 
But let me just give you one example of how this relationship, your relationship with God, will be new and fresh and invigorating, more in the new earth than you could ever imagine in this earth. Think about your prayer life. Now on this earth, when you pray to God, you pray to a God who is in heaven, and you close your eyes so that you're not distracted by things on earth while you talk to him. That's why we close our eyes, incidentally, so that we're not distracted by other things going on around us. But in the new earth, you won't have to close your eyes because God will be right there. You will see his face, we're told. There will be nothing to distract you from him in the new earth. And when you're in the new earth, you will no longer pray, Our Father which art in heaven, because your Father will be on the earth with you. That will be an amazing qualitative difference in your fellowship with God. The tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. What a day that will be. So when Christ comes, not only will the church be made new, not only will our relationship with God be made new, not only will heaven and earth be made new, but then fifthly, when Jesus comes the second time, our bodies will also be made new. Our very bodies will be made new. Now, Jesus told us, didn't he, in this world, in this world, you'll have trouble. And that trouble is of all sorts, but much of that trouble that we have in this world is actually bodily trouble, isn't it? In this world, you will have trouble. Genesis 3, in this world, ladies, you will have pain in childbirth. Every childbirth, and particularly sometimes there are complications with it. In this world, some of you will have bad knees. In this world, there's blindness. In this world, there's heart disease. In this world, there are problems with our weight. In this world, urinary tract infections and mononucleosis and back problems and cysts. In this world, there's cancer of every kind. In this world, there is lung disease. There are kidney stones. There's morning sickness in this world. There are cataracts, arthritis, There's nerve damage in this world. There are varicose veins in this world. There are kidney stones in this world. There are neurons in our brains that don't fire correctly in this world. There are thyroids in our bodies that don't balance the way they're supposed to in this world. In this world, there's vertigo. In this world, there are children born with their intestines on the outside of their bodies. In this world, there are families who don't have enough food. There are villages in Africa and Asia who have no fresh water to drink. In this world, there are just all the humdrum difficulties of old age. And most difficult of all, probably, in this world, there are loved ones who suffer and die with all of these things, and we watch it happen. In this world, you will have trouble with your bodies. But behold, says the Lord God in verse 5, I am making all things new. And one of the things he's going to make new in verse 4 is our body. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. All those descriptions primarily are things that have to do with our body, death, pain, and so on. None of those things will exist when Christ comes. 
similar things are said back in Revelation chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. God is going to make our bodies altogether new. And we're told by the Apostle Paul that he's going to make them imperishable. You know what perishable things are, right? Perishable goods. And our bodies are perishable goods, aren't they? Our bodies are like the apples that somebody gave you in your Christmas basket that by now are bruised and turning brown. That's what happens to our bodies, isn't it? But in the new heavens and the new earth, not only will we be made fresh and new at the beginning, but we will be imperishable. We will never bruise, we will never brown, we will never wither anymore. There will be no more sickness, no more pain, no more injury, no more death. Behold, I am making all things new, God says, including human bodies. And then sixthly, he tells us that when Christ comes a second time, God will make our souls new as well. Our souls will be made new. And I want you to see two different ways here in Revelation 21. First, we're told in verse 6 that every thirst of our souls will be quenched. Every thirst of our souls will be quenched. The end of the verse, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. There's physical thirst that God will satisfy, but he will also satisfy the thirst of our souls. So my thirst every January for a new start. Your thirst perhaps for real friendship. Your thirst for freedom from some particular sin. Perhaps a thirst that you have for lasting pleasure. Most of us have that thirst. At least I find myself when I'm doing something I enjoy, one of the things that's always going on in the back of my mind while I'm doing something I enjoy is the thought, soon this is going to be over. If I'm enjoying a ball game, I'm thinking, boy, it's already the seventh inning and it's going to be over and the fun will end. But there's a day coming when even that thirst, our thirst for pleasure that will not end, will be satisfied. All the deep desires of our soul will be in the new heavens and the new earth, perpetually, unstintingly, unceasingly slaked. He says in verse 6, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. That's one way that our souls will be made new, that they will be continually refreshed in God's presence. We will never find ourselves bored of spiritual things. We will never find ourselves slipping into backsliddenness in heaven. No, our souls will continually thirst for God and be satisfied, and thirst for God and be satisfied. And that cycle will go on that beautiful cycle forever. But then also our souls will be made new, verse 8, in that our souls will finally be free of sin. Isn't that wonderful? Our souls will finally be free of sin. Now we draw that from verse 8. Read it. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, just as an aside, notice that being cowardly or unbelieving there is put on the same level as being a murderer or an immoral person. So is being a liar. Sin is sin is sin. And what we're being told here is that heaven won't be filled with sinful people. Now, what does that mean? Is this verse telling us that no one will be in heaven who used to be an immoral person or a liar 
or so on. Is that what it's saying? No one will be in heaven who used to be cowardly or unbelieving? Well, that surely can't be what it's saying because that would exclude all of us, right? We were all unbelieving at one point. We have all sinned in many ways. It's not saying that there will be no one in heaven who has ever sinned. What it's saying is rather that the people who are in heaven will be people who sin no longer in these ways. We will no longer live like we used to live. That's the point of verse 8. The people who want to continue in sin won't be in this new heaven and in this new earth. So perhaps we used to be cowardly and unbelieving. We used to be abominable or murderers or sorcerers or liars or so on. But when we get to heaven, what we're being told in verse 8 is we will have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That process, of course, begins gradually in this life as we lay aside the old self and put on the new by the power of the Spirit. But that process will be perfected in heaven when Christ comes It will be perfected in the new heavens and the new earth. The inhabitants of the new heavens and the new earth, we're told in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, are called the spirits of the righteous made perfect. They didn't used to be perfect, but they've been made perfect. Old sinful creatures like us made new. For behold, he says in verse 5, I'm making all things new, including you with all of your struggles and me with all of mine. In this life, we will never gain ultimate satisfaction. And in this life, we will never completely lose our sin. But when Christ comes, we will gain what has been for us unattainable in this life. And when Christ comes, we will lose what was unavoidable in this life, namely our sin. Behold, I am making all things new. Now, before we finish... I just wonder if you noticed how many times you heard the word lamb as we read different parts of Revelation this morning. We said that word again and again and again. John has used it over and over. The lamb. For instance, why did we hear that the new heaven and the new earth has no need for the sun or the moon? Well, verse 23, For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. Or from where did that clean river flow, that unpolluted river that waters the new earth? Where did that come from? Chapter 22, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Or to whom is the church, the bride of Christ, espouse? Look at chapter 21, verse 9. Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. What does it mean that God will dwell with his people and his tabernacle will be among us as we read in verse 3? Well, that's explained also in chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be among God's people. Why, as we read in chapter 7, will we hunger and thirst no more when Christ comes? Well, because we're told in chapter 7 as well that the Lamb, as we read, will be their shepherd and He will guide them to streams of living water. How is it that our souls can be made new and cleansed from sin as we just finished saying? Well, chapter 7 again tells us they have washed their robes and made them white 
in the blood of the Lamb. Thirty times in the book of Revelation, John refers to Jesus, not as Jesus or not as Christ, not as the Son of God, but 30 times he refers to him specifically as the Lamb. Why is that? Well, you realize probably that lambs in the culture in which John lived, lambs in the biblical culture, were for sacrifice. You raised up lambs, yes, for their wool, yes, for their meat, but you also raised up lambs in order that they might shed their blood in the place of sinners so that sinners would have access to God. And in calling Jesus the Lamb again and again and again, and in telling us that the river of water comes from the Lamb, and that it will be the Lamb who will dwell with His people, and that it's the Lamb who cleanses our souls, in using that word Lamb over and over again, John is reminding us that our only access to God, the only reason we have a place in this new earth, the only reason we have a part in the bride, the only reason there's freedom from sickness or freedom from sin or access to the tree of life or all the glories of heaven, the only reason they exist is because of the lamb who was slain on our behalf. He calls him the lamb so that we will remember that everything in this book of Revelation comes back to the fact that he died. He was sacrificed for us. God is making all things new, but he is doing so at the cost of the blood of his own dear son, whom John calls the Lamb. It is from the throne of the Lamb that the river of life flows. It is in the light of the Lamb that we will live in that one eternal day, chapter 21, 23. It is in the presence of the Lamb, according to chapter 14.10, that hell's torments will be outpoured upon the wicked. And it is in the blood of the Lamb, chapter 7, as we said, that we wash our garments white and avoid that fate. Behold, I am making all things new, says the Lord. But this refreshing comes, verse 27, only to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Only those to those who love and embrace God's lamb, the lamb that was slain for our sins. And so the question when the new year comes and the question this morning is not necessarily, do you wish for a fresh start? Do you wish that God would make all things new? We all want that, don't we? We all want things to be better, the slate to be wiped clean. We all want it to be finally right. But the question is, have you embraced the lamb? Who makes it so? Have you embraced Jesus? If you know Jesus, if your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then the promise here is surely for you, whether you see the results of it in this world or not. If you know Jesus, the promise is for you. Behold, I am making all things new.